0: Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, we just acknowledge that you are holy, you are good, Lord, you are worthy, Lord, we trust you that in your goodness, in your power, Lord, that your hand is in control, and so, Lord, we just pray that in the midst of this season of life we find ourselves in, Lord, that your purposes would would just be shown to be grand, Lord, and Lord, we would be able to see your hand working as you are, working in the lives of your people, Lord, as you are calling men and women to yourself, um, as you are working within our homes, Lord, exposing sin that might be present, Lord, and leading us to repentance, we pray that your spirit would just convict us and would lead us to to Christ Jesus, Lord, I pray. Lord, that you truly would use this time as a time of revival and awakening uh, just for your people. Lord, you would use this as a time to draw men and women who are currently living in darkness to yourself. And Lord, I pray that um, we would just have confidence in you in this time. Lord, as I open up your word this morning, I pray that you would help me to have confidence in your word. Lord, I, th- I thank you for the reminder in your prophets, Lord, that your word speaks in power, and, Lord, that you are in control, no matter what the circumstances might look like. And, Lord, that you You are good. And so I pray that as we open up your word today, that, Lord, you would train us in righteousness. You would convict us of sin. And, Lord, ultimately you would shift our eyes to uh, your glorious son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And that we would leave this time uh, loving Jesus more. Lord, thank you for all that you do. I pray that you bless this time. In your name I pray. Amen. So uh, we are continuing our series within the prophets. This is our seventh book in our series as we make our way through the Old Testament prophetic books. And uh, while this is book number seven in the canonical order of Scripture, this is actually probably one of the earliest prophets. So today we're going to be in the book of Amos. And Amos uh, stands as one of the earlier prophets to come along in his prophetic ministry. Uh, if you remember in our first sermon out of the book of Isaiah, uh, he mentioned that a king named Uzziah had died. Well, Amos's prophetic ministry is actually taking place during Uzziah's reign. So during this time, Amos uh, walks into a scenario in which we find a fairly prosperous time actually for both places. So neither the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah have gone into exile yet. In fact, both of them are doing very well from all kind of measurable factors. When we look and scan the scene from just kind of a over-the-top, big-picture view, what we find is that the people of Israel are doing great. Uh, there's no real natural enemies surrounding them. There's no Egyptian armies or Babylonian armies or Assyrian armies looming at their borders. Uh, they're in a relative state of peace. Uh, they're also doing financially very well. Uh, their crops are coming in great money is plentiful for the people. And so uh, when you look at the scene from just kind of a general point of view, you would suspect that things are going well. when we consider this promise from the Lord in terms of his covenant to bless them when they obey and curse them when they disobey. Uh, you might look at this scenario and say, man, they must be living life really, really well. However, when you strip back the veneer of this image, and when you look behind the scenes and actually start to take a look at the state of Israel, what we find is that all is not well. In fact, at every single level, from private to public life, what we find is a people who have compromised the Lord and His statutes and who have turned to idols and idolatry. And so it's in the midst of this, this people living in sin, who have leaders and prophets in their midst who are failing to condemn it. They're saying, all is well. Peace is upon us. Prosperity is hit. We don't need to change anything. Keep doing what we're doing. The Lord calls this sheep herding fig farmer from Judah to go to the people of Israel and proclaim the word of the Lord. The prophet Amos starts out with this line I want to read to you. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says this, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. This language of the Lord roaring is continued throughout the book of Amos. If we look at verses 4 and 8 in chapter 3, we notice he continues this theme, and he asks these questions. He says, Does a lion roar in the forest if he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? The Lord has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So, friends, we're reminded of the power of the prophetic office as we see the Lord's voice coming from this prophet like a roaring lion. And uh, I must confess, we live in a pretty tame culture. Most of us have probably not had too many really serious run ins with dangerous wild animals. So I want us to take a a moment to try to consider the severity of this imagery. Imagine today if you turned on the news and you heard that every single lion from the Kansas City Zoo had escaped from captivity and found themselves at large within the city. Probably most of us are stubborn like myself, and while there'd be a little bit of a moment of fear, you'd probably eventually just go back to life as normal, right? You just keep doing what you always do. And uh, I imagine... At some point, you find yourself getting the family together and say, you know what, we're in quarantine, it's time to go on a walk. And imagine you begin to push the stroller down the sidewalk, or you begin to walk down the street, and all of a sudden, from a block over, you hear the sound of a booming roar of a lion. Now, it would be utterly foolish of us if we were to experience this moment and continue walking forward. It would be absolute folly on our behalf if we continued on the path we were on, knowing that there's a lion waiting for us there. And so this is the goal of Amos as he comes as this prophet of the Lord Jesus. He comes to proclaim the truth that all is not well amongst the Israelite people. They've made peace with their sin. But there's a lion from Judah who is roaring. And friends, what we see is that the Lord God... Is not on friendly terms with sin. He doesn't blink at it, he doesn't turn his head aside from it, but he has real wrath for it. Sin and death has a mortal enemy, and his name is the Lord of hosts, the lion from Zion. And so today we're going to notice this as we look through the book of Amos, as we see. Uh, three things that I want us to kind of pick up as we're moving through. The first thing we're going to notice is that God is the impartial judge of sin. Second thing I want us to look at is the facade and tragedy of hollow, empty religion. And then the final thing we're going to notice is the glorious paradox of the promise of sin, destruction, but also the promise of redemption for sinners. So that's what we're going to do today as we uh, look through this book. So we're going to start in the first four chapters of Amos and we're going to kind of look at this from an overview perspective and uh, notice this first point that God truly is the impartial judge of sin. So while Amos comes as this farmer, as the sheep herder, what we find is uh, as he speaks on behalf of the Lord, there's a power and a presence in his rhetoric and even a poet within him. And he begins this prophetic career as he goes to the people of Israel. And he begins to offer up this oracle against the nations. He begins to use this repetitive pattern in which he says, for three transgressions and even for four, I will not revoke my punishment. And what he's doing with this phrase is he's elevating the reality that there is a sure punishment coming to these nations. So he lists six specific city-states, Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. And what we see is the Lord goes through each of these using this poetic pattern of pointing to sins and egregious sins found within these people and promising that their destruction is near. Now, he uses some metaphorical language in the process, but what we find loud and clear is that these people have been severely harming others. These people have rejected the Imago Dei and have attacked the image of God by mistreating humans. We see these countries accused of abusing others through harsh military tactics, killing of the innocent like women and children, and even selling people into slavery. And the Lord sees this and utters the promise that punishment is sure to come. And I want to stop for a second and just acknowledge the fact that while it's oftentimes uncomfortable and even tragic when we consider um, judgment and punishment, I also want us to reflect on God's goodness in this. For you see, there are many religious and ideological systems that have tried to offer consolence for the evil that surrounds us, the evil that has occurred throughout history. For some, there's this idea that we can just erase heaven, erase hell, Take away things that divide us like religions and then we'll find ourselves at peace and our problems will be gone. For other people there's this ideology that believes that if we simply create a world in our minds where evil doesn't happen then eventually it just goes away. And for some still there's even the idea that would say that there really isn't any abject truth anyways. There's no such thing as truth so evil can't really exist either. There's not, there's not right, there's not wrong. Things just are. But when we take those and we sit those next to reality, all of those fail to capture or comfort us in our trials and our pains. The promise of no heaven and hell does nothing for a sick man on a sickbed. Promise of no heaven, no hell. The promise that, oh, evil's not really here, if we just ignore it, it won't be, it does nothing to console a family who has seen a child die. It does nothing to console us when we see real evil attacking goodness. And so, friends, I, I want us to take a moment in thankfulness as we consider the Lord is not like these other gods. When the Lord sees sin, He doesn't just turn away from it. He doesn't just wink at it. The Lord doesn't see sin and offer to take a bribe to ignore it. And the Lord is not powerless to do something about it. But what we see is that the Lord knows and sees all injustice. The Lord knows and sees all sin. And the Lord has promised that he will do something about it. The Lord has promised that death and evil have a day in which they will be destroyed. And so, friends, there's comfort in this for us. In our heart of hearts, we long to see righteousness and justice done. And friends, the Lord God Himself is both just and righteous. Your pain is not meaningless to God. Evil is not inconsequential to Him, but is deadly serious. He is the righteous judge of the earth, and He will punish evil. We notice also as He continues on, Amos goes to a seventh city to address, and this is the city of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, the people of the southern kingdom, and the Lord addresses them, and he uses the same formula saying that their demise also is coming. Their judgment is on the way as well, for they have rejected the law, and they have despised the Lord's statutes. And friends, as Amos is going through this oracle, as he's casting judgment upon these nations. Likely it would have been for the people of Israel that they would have been extremely excited about this. This would have been one of the most popular sermons they had heard preached in their midst for a long time. Probably five-star rating on all podcast services. Because people were long for justice. These enemies that surrounded them, they were going to get what's due to them. And the people of Israel would have been wildly excited about this. But what we see with Amos, what he's doing here is he's setting up these people. He's drawing them in so that they might agree with him, so that they're listening to his words. But he's about to turn the tables on them. If I had my flanagraph over here with me, I might be able to show you a map of that region. And uh, if we were looking at a map and listen as Amos is going through each of these cities, what he's doing is he's actually drawing circles. He's moving in a circular pattern around Israel, and he's getting closer and closer with each city that he mentions. When he gets to Judah, he hits their closest neighbor, and uh, some scholars have suggested the fact that this was his seventh point would have suggested that his sermon was done. So he had preached and proclaimed the word of God, judgment is coming upon these cities, and probably the people would have given a standing ovation. Sermon's over, and uh, we love everything we just heard. However, what we see is that Amos has set them up, in a similar fashion to the way the prophet Nathan called David to the attention of his sin with Bathsheba and the murdering of her husband, he paints the scenario that David agrees with, that recognizes and sees the injustice of, and he says to him, David, you are that man. See, Amos is doing something similar here. He's pointing them to the reality that what we do matters. He's pointing them to the reality that the Lord sees injustice, the Lord sees wickedness, and the Lord will punish it, in which they long to hear. And yet the Lord is about to turn the tables on them in his eighth point for this sermon as he points to the fact that they themselves also have done injustice. So let's read this together in Amos 2, verse 6-8. It says this, For thus says the Lord, For the three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. But so we see in this indictment the Lord, using the prophet Amos, as pointing out that comprehensively the people of Israel have rebelled against God's standards and statutes. We see this as a society that is running off of evil, that has thrown true justice and true righteousness to the wayside. They are willing to subvert justice at the gates where contracts are signed, where court decisions are made. They're willing to cast those aside for bribes. They'll take their silver and give you any verdict you want, even if it means sending the righteous to prison, even if it means crushing the poor. We see that this is a people who is trampling on the least of these within their society in order to gain selfishly. This is a people who has no regard for the benefits that they might reap, whatever it might cost others. This is a people who is engaged in gross, even worse than pagan sexual ethic of this time. And this is a people who even their worship practices, even their attempts to provide ritual worship to the Lord are marred by paganism and by hearts that are corrupted. So we see Amos address of this reality, how truly heinous it is in chapter 3 when he tells the people, he reminds them that it was the Lord God who brought them out of Egypt. Egypt. It was the Lord himself who delivered them on that day, and it was them alone that he has known. And yet they of a people have rejected him. They've been given greater revelation than the rest of these, and so their accountability for their sin stands in greater measure. We notice as we shift to chapter 4 that the Lord can... continues to clarify the nature of this sin in their midst. He begins in chapter 1, verse 2, with a very scathing charge. He refers to the women of Israel as the cows of Bashan. And I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't think there's there are not many societies where calling someone a cow is a compliment. And in this case, it is meant to draw their attention. So when we think of this word Bashan, this was a region in Israel that was Very fruitful, uh, agriculturally speaking. Plenty of crops, um, a very wealthy region. And as Amos looks to this, he refers to the people there, specifically the women in this case, and he says, you fattened yourself up on wealth to the detriment of those around you. He said you're literally, as you're gaining in your wealth and prosperity, you're literally crushing all of those beneath you. This is a people who has no regard for the least of these around them. They're crushing those, in fact, even stepping on the backs of others to climb and and gain more prosperity. And the Lord says to them, you're fattening yourself up in preparation for slaughter. I know finances can be a a very tricky topic to address. Oftentimes, it's much less about a number and much more about the heart that's behind it. As we're looking at the implications of Amos, this is clear. What we see is this is a people who... Are willingly exploiting those around them in order to continue to gain on their own behalf. And I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment to ask us to consider in our own lives. Are there areas in which we ourselves could be guilty of doing this? Perhaps maybe even unknowingly. This would be easy for me to pinpoint if there's anyone here who currently is making money by selling sexual images online or by Killing babies in an abortion clinic, um, if that's you, or maybe you're enslaving humans right now, if that's you, I'll beg you to stop now. For most of us, though, I think probably nothing that blatant stands out to us. But it's worth asking the question. Perhaps it's worth looking and saying, are there aspects of my job in which I'm mistreating others? Are there aspects of my life in which I'm taking advantage of other people in order to gain dishonestly? Are some of those gray areas in my life perhaps maybe a little more clear if uh, I meditate in light of Scripture? I once heard uh, a poet say that we either love money and use people or use money to love people. And say, I, I pray that we do the latter. I beg us to be those who do the latter, who use our resources and uh, what the Lord has blessed us with to bless other people. We notice that Amos continues this charge, though, in verses 4 through 5. And uh, he draws on this sarcastic tone. He invites the people to come to Gilgal and Bethel and sin. He says, come here and increase your transgressions. And the irony of that statement is Bethel literally means the house of God. These were two places that were built up uh, in the northern kingdom after they separated from the southern kingdom in order to be places where they come to offer sacrifice to the Lord. These were meant to be places where people would come to worship the Lord God. And so the irony is very thick as he invites them. He said, keep coming here so that you might continue to build up your transgression. As we take a little bit deeper dive into this, what we realize is that the Lord himself had instructed this people specifically how he is to be worshipped. The Lord God had instructed this people to build the temple in Jerusalem, and it was to be in this temple in Jerusalem where the sacrificial system was to take place. It was to be in this place where the Lord would be offered sacrifice. And so we see that the Lord is not willy-nilly when it comes to how he is to be worshipped, but he has spoken clearly on behalf of the people. And so these people have erected for themselves a false temple, is people have erected for themselves a false place of worship. And the Lord says, as you come here, you're continuing to mount up transgressions. You're not worshiping me. Another irony we see in this is that they actually erected golden calves in each of these places, uh, modeled after the same golden calf we see in Exodus 32. And again, the irony of that reality is the lesson we learned from Exodus, Exodus 32 is that sincerity in worship does not replace truth. Just because we're sincere in our efforts to worship the Lord does not mean we're actually worshiping Him in truth. The Lord has revealed Himself to us. The Lord has given us His Word, and the Lord has instructed instructed us how we are to worship Him. And yet, for this people, they've created these faux houses, these places of worship that the Lord never asked them to make. In fact, the Lord told them not to make, and yet they're coming here to try to offer sacrifice to the Lord. And this is a truly sad scene that we see as we look at this people who have rejected the Lord in totality. They've rejected Him in their familial ranks. They've rejected Him in the way that they do business. They've rejected Him even in the way that they practice their organized religion. They've been given this unique privilege and special revelation to know God and follow His ways, and yet they have settled for these deceitful imitations, these cheap, empty knockoffs that are unable to provide any kind of meaningful relationship with the Lord. And friends, this leads us into our second point, and that's the tragedy and facade of hollow religion, of empty spiritualism or ritualism. We see, in chapter 5, the Lord begins again, by pointing to these practices, he says, quit going to Bethel. Quit going to Gilgal. He said, quit seeking to appease or search for spirituality in all these other places. But he said, seek me and live. And friends, this is the tragedy of hollow and empty religion as it draws people in. We're drawn into these Places and we're giving our time and our efforts and our affections and our finances to these things that are completely empty. They offer us no satisfaction. They offer us no true healing. They offer us no salvation. And the Lord sees this people walking in these empty practices, and he pleads with them, he begs them to seek him. He says, seek me and live. So I was reading this, I was reminded of a story that Pastor Ronnie shared with us when he went to Italy as we were in northern Italy looking for uh, opportunities, how the Lord might use us to uh, help with planting churches and and to help serve the people there. And Pastor Ronnie shared a story of seeing a person who was before this image of Mary crying out, begging that she would save them, asking Mary to save them. And all the while, there was Jesus, right there. And no one stood up to point and say, the only one who can save you is right here. And friends, this is the the tragedy of hollow, empty ideology, of empty religion. as It points us to saviors who can't save. The Lord makes this point emphatically. He sees this people who have dabbled in everything. Finances, the God of mammon, sexuality, Molech, Bel, all of these names and all of these religions, they're taking from a smorgasbord, of buffet of world religion and ideology and just hoping that maybe one of them will satisfy them and sustain them and all the while the Lord stands ready. And in verses 21 through 24, we see he emphatically enforces this. He says this, I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your hearts, for I will not listen. But let justice roll down like the waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So we see, friends, that Israel's worship has been marred by pagan practices, and by attempts to bring in all these other entities and gods, and by lives that have rejected the clear statutes that the Lord has given to them, and he responds by telling them, enough with the festivals, enough with the songs. I take no pleasure in the offerings that you've given, but the offering that I desire is for righteousness and justice to flow. I desire not the empty rituals that you've Tried to bring before me to appease me, but he desires men and women who delight in him and his statutes and his ways. This brings to mind passages like Romans 12:1, as Paul is speaking in light of the fact that the Lord, there's not an area of this earth that doesn't belong to the Lord and that is not for his glory. And Paul pleads for Christians in this reality to offer their bodies as living sacrifices. He says, "This is your spiritual act of worship." Friends, this is an acknowledgement that there is not a sphere in this world that is out of the jurisdiction of the Lord. The Lord's just and judicial reign and His glory informs how we worship Him in every single area of our lives. There's no compartmentalization. We don't have one thing here and one thing here and never the two shall meet. But comprehensively, it's all for God's glory. There's no disconnect from the songs we sing to how we treat people. There's no disconnect with our private and our public life. There's no disconnect between individually how we worship and corporately how we worship. Our heart and our mind, our beliefs and our actions, all of these, the Lord demands his glory within. And so friends, this is what Amos is pleading them to do, to worship the Lord. Throw away these hollow practices. Throw away these empty attempts to try to justify yourself and cling to the Lord Himself. This is worship. So, as the Lord has pleaded with this people to turn from their wickedness, I want us to go to our last point. And that's as we see this glorious paradox in this book. We see this promise of judgment to come, and yet we also see this promise of restoration and redemption. So in chapters 7 through 9, we see that Amos reveals to the people that judgment is sure to come. We see the Amos twice intercedes on behalf of these people. And the Lord grants his request, listens to his prayer, and yet judgment is still sure. They're not going to escape it. And so we see he offers up in these series of visions a promise that there's going to be pestilence that comes to strike. All the altars and high places for these false gods that they've erected are going to be struck down by the Lord. And the people are going to be like a basket of fruit. They're going to be plucked out. They're going to be taken from their land. This is what's going to happen. Friends, as we discussed earlier, as we looked at earlier, it truly is a good thing that the Lord punishes sin. In our heart of hearts, we know this is right. We long for justice. We long for true righteousness to take place. When we see injustice, it scathes us, it angers us. We want to see the truth and righteousness stand supreme. And yet, friends, this uncovers the fundamental problem with humanity. For you see, we long for Christ, and we long for the Lord to punish evil, and yet we are forced to come to grips with the reality that we ourselves are sinners. We ourselves are evil. We ourselves have become enemies of the Lord God as we've rebelled against Him in our wickedness and our sin. And friends, as we consider this reality, we have to come to the grips of this, is that the Lord is a lion from Zion. The Lord roars from heaven. The day is promised that He will come and swallow up all evil. And the problem with that reality is because we are sinners, that means we deserve His wrath. The lion who comes to crush sin is coming to crush you. And so when we consider this in light of this, we're forced to ask ourselves the question, then where is the hope? What hope do we have? Is there any? See, this book of Amos does a great job of pointing to us the reality of the weight of our sin. And I pray we feel it today. And we notice in the last small section of the book a promise occurs. The prophet Amos points to the reality through the word of the Lord that there is a day coming when a descendant of David's throne will be established. And when these ruined cities, these cities that have been crushed by sin, that have been destroyed by their idolatry and their disregard for human beings, these cities that lie in ruins will once again be raised up By a holy and righteous judge, and it will be inhabited by his people. And so we ask the question how is this so? How will this be made known? And friends, the answer to that question comes in the person of Jesus Christ. I want us to take a moment to consider a scene we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 5. John, the same John who wrote, the book of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, also wrote the book of Revelation, inspired by the Lord, is in, drawn up into the scene. He's in the throne room of heaven. And a voice comes and says that the day of the Lord is coming, the day that the Lord is going to set right all that is evil. He's going to open up these scrolls and unleash punishment upon sin and establish his just and good reign. And yet they look around and John sees no one who's worthy to open the scroll. And he begins to weep. There's no one who's righteous and holy enough to open the scroll. And then one of the elders in heaven directs John's attention. He says, take heart and do not weep. For the lion of the tribe of Judah, this descendant of David, Jesus Christ himself is able to open the scroll. And when John looks, he looks and he doesn't see a man. He doesn't see a lion, but what he sees is the lamb who was slain. And the lamb is able to open the scrolls, and they begin to worship the lamb who was slain. And friends, this is not an optical illusion, and this is not a trick that was played, but what this is reality is that Jesus Christ himself is both the lion who crushes sin and the lamb who was slain. Friends, it is in the person of Jesus that this glorious paradox is answered. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon on this called The Excellencies of Christ that I highly recommend you to consider. But as we look at this passage, we're forced to come to grips with the glorious reality that all the seemingly incompatible realities of our sin and a holy God, how can they ever be drawn together, are answered in Jesus Christ himself. Friends, Jesus is the Lion who will crush sin, and yet He is the Lamb who has crushed Himself on behalf of sinners. Jesus Christ is the Lion who is zealous for the holiness of God, who Himself was without sin, and yet He is also the Lamb who willingly took on the sins of His people that He might be punished so that we might have life. We don't have to ask the question, does God take our sin seriously? We look to the cross of Jesus Christ and see it punished there. We don't have to ask the question, does Jesus love sinners? We look to the cross of Christ and see him willingly lay down his life so that you might be redeemed. Brothers and sisters, this is the answer to our greatest need and our greatest problem. Jesus Christ, who is both the Lion and the Lamb. The one who will crush sin and the one who is crushed on our behalf so that our sin might be taken away. So, friends, in light of this, I want to encourage you with two pastoral charges as we conclude our time this morning. And the first of these is this I want to invite you to embrace uh, God's words of warning as a gift. I know that might seem counterintuitive to many of us here today as we consider it's very seldom fun for us to hear. Uh, that we're living in sin, to hear that we're wrong, to hear what we're doing is out of step with the way of God. But I want us to consider that this is God's gift to us. First, for the believer, is our gift as we get the opportunity to be molded into and conformed into the image of Christ. We're no longer under the penalty of sin. We've been released because of the blood of the Lamb who was slain. And so, when we have sin in our life, it's our joy to be able to turn and walk away. And for those of you who are listening today who don't know Christ, I beg you to see this as a gift as well. Perhaps when you hear speak of judgment, you hear speak of, of punishment and sin, it can be daunting and perhaps even offensive and hard to hear. But, friend, it's meant for your good in the same way that one would warn that a lion was about to attack. So this word is a warning for you, and it's a blessing. We see Amos in chapter 8 even predicts that a time is coming for this people when there's going to be a famine. He's not talking about a famine of bread and wheat or of juice and wine, but he's talking about a famine of the word of God. He said a time is coming when a famine will come on this land, and you will be deprived of hearing the Word of God. And so, friends, it's grace to you this morning if you are able to hear the Word of the Lord, and I would beg you today to listen. Don't turn your ear away from Him if He's calling to you this morning, convicting you of sin, revealing idols in your life. I pray that you would respond to Him today and worship, and you would cry out to Him. The next thing I want to charge us with is to embrace... The whole Christ. Embrace all of it. I think there's a tendency in our culture, and maybe amongst many of us as well, to to gravitate towards certain parts of Jesus and not towards others. Perhaps for some of us this morning, we love the imagery of the lion. We love the picture of God coming to punish sin. And yet we find ourselves having a hard time forgiving sinners. We have ourselves having a hard time imagining that the Lord could ever forgive this person who did this to me. And let me just encourage you this morning. Nothing has been cheapened in his forgiveness. We see that the Lord does not take sin lightly. In fact, he took it so seriously that Jesus Christ himself came, took on flesh, and endured the wrath of God. All of it, he drank the whole cup of the wrath of God. The punishment that was meant for you was poured out upon him. So sin is not cheap to him. It's no small thing. And when the Lord forgives a sinner, he doesn't wink at the sin, but it was literally paid for in full. And so the Lord has punished sin. And so I ask you to embrace that reality that the Lord forgives sinners. Perhaps maybe for many of us, and in a greater number, I would imagine, uh, love the idea of, of a Jesus who's meek and mild, who came in the manger, who came riding on a donkey, and who's all grace, doesn't want to offend anybody. Jesus who just gives everyone a hug, Jesus who uh, would never tell you you're sinning, but Jesus who tells you to embrace who you are and do as you please, live life to fulfill yourself, friends. I need to tell you this morning that that Jesus does not exist. That Jesus does not exist. For we see further in the book of Revelation that that same Jesus who was the lamb who was slain is also the lion who punishes sin. That same Jesus who laid down his life for sinners is also the Jesus who one day is coming back. And when he does, he will be leading the armies of heaven he will be crowned in glory with a royal diadem and scepter upon him and a robe. And he will have a tattoo on his thigh that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And with the justness, he will judge the nations. And he will slay the dragon of sin. And he will punish all wickedness. So friends, I invite you to embrace the whole Christ. We cannot overemphasize the grace that he has for sinners. And we cannot overemphasize his holiness. He is fully holy, and he is fully gracious. He is more holy than we can ever imagine, and he is more gracious than we could ever hope. And so, friends, I invite you today to marvel at Jesus. Marvel at your God who has laid down his life for sinners. Marvel at your God who does not take evil and wickedness lightly. Your your punishment he took upon himself your pain and your sorrow, he will wipe away one day, never to return. This is your God, Christian. And if you don't know him today, I beg you, non believer, that you would cry out to him, that you would bow to him now. For friends, the reality is simple we will either cling to the lamb or we'll be crushed by the lion of Judah. You will either bow the knee to him in this life or you will bow the knee to him in the next life, but it will be too late. So I beg of you today to cling to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. Let's pray. Lord, we magnify your name. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. Lord, we thank you that in your goodness that you have Lord, provided for us your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we recognize that, Lord, we all fall short. Lord, in and of ourselves, we are wicked. Lord, we are sinners. We are part of the problem. And yet, in Christ, we have everything we need, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you don't wink at sin and wickedness, Lord, that there is true justice in the world. There is a day coming when all things will be set right. All wrongs will be righted. All evil will be cast aside aside. And Lord, I pray that in the meantime as we wait, Lord, that we as your ambassadors would joyously proclaim Christ crucified while there is still time. Lord, I pray that there's anyone today listening who doesn't know you, that you even now would soften their hearts, Lord, that they would see that you are good, Lord, that they would learn to love your your righteousness and your justice, and Lord, that they would love your mercy, Lord, that we would love all of you, and not just the parts that we like, Lord, but that we would love you fully. Lord, I thank you so much for this people. I do offer a prayer on behalf of our world and our nation, that you would continue to work, and Lord, that you would bring spiritual healing. You would bring uh, families together and draw them near to yourself. Lord, that you would use this time that we have to do that, and Lord, that when we come back, uh, that we would not be unchanged by this, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't go back to status quo, Lord, but that we would uh, have a greater joy in you, uh, a greater love for you as we go through these things. Lord, it's in your name I pray, amen. Mayus, uh thank you so much. Love you guys. I uh, hope uh, you're encouraged today. Um, I'm going to close this out with a just a, Pastoral benediction, and then uh, you'll be dismissed. It comes from book of Numbers 622-27. through 27. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The Lord be with you and the Lord bless you today, brothers and sisters in Christ. I count it all joy to be your brother and pastor. And I pray that we would cling to the whole Christ this week. God God bless you guys. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.